0: Smart there, I guess, you smart that I before I give you any advice. But he, it was awesome to have him alive. And Mother, of course, uh, was
1: around, too. And uh, she Mr. Butch, when deal. are you going to apologize for the million Iraqis that are dead yeah. because you lied? You lied about weapons of mass destruction. You lied about connections to 9-11. Senator you lied Coward, about Iraqis.
2: You, you, Iraq. you sent me to Iraq. You sent me to Iraq in 2003. My friends are dead. No, 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 no. Joshua Kastil...
1: Yes, you you yes, killed yes, people so speak, You lied lie about WSD! A million Iraqis are dead because you lie! My friends are dead
2: because you lied. You need to apologize! 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 Are you with this gentleman? No. No. Are you? you know, one of the things are, is I she don't with is, this gentleman?
0: Uh, did she
2: come in with him
3: or is she with So without further ado, uh Mike Prisner Prizner. Prize. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. Um, yeah, I guess I don't know. my first question, like just before we get to what happened is, I don't know, I, I didn't serve in the military, so much props to you. But for me, I've been kind of disgusted with like the media's extreme makeover of George W. Bush. So I wanted to ask you as somebody who served and has been so negatively affected uh, as well as the people you served with. What's it been like over the last five or six years where uh, President Bush has basically been framed as like, ah, waxing poetic for the days of George W. Bush?
1: Yeah. um, You know, it's funny, like Bush used to be kind of too toxic to touch. I mean, if you remember back at the 2008 Republican National Convention, Bush was not there and had no speaking role. So even among his own party, he was. too controversial or was kind of too well known for his, uh, you know, massive, I guess you could call them failures, even though they kind of got the intended outcome of of destroying an independent country and invading others. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, really, the first thing where Bush started to kind of step back into public life that was the most painful was when he started, of course, doing his paintings. But his first book of paintings was of soldiers who died in Iraq and I honestly couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that that was a real thing that was happening. Um, it just was too so obscene. It like it it had to be parody, but it's it's real. Uh, it's true. And then you're right, Jordan. It wasn't until really Trump that he was he had this opening to have a revival in his career. Now, ex-presidents all have very lucrative careers, um, even, you know, like if you're Bill Clinton, if you're Barack Obama, you get paid like $700,000 per speaking event. And that becomes like your main source of income after leaving office. Bush is kind of like a D-list ex-president. He gets between $100,000 and $175,000 for speaking events. But he's done over 200 speaking events since he left office in 2008, which means he's made uh, about $35 million in speaking fees since he has left office. And to my knowledge is uh, uh, none of them had have been disrupted. So to kind of know that his career is not only kind of bounced back in in some way as a public figure, but related to the Iraq war. I mean, the paintings uh, talking about his legacy as a president in like this positive, unchallenged way, like at the, the event I was at. So, yeah, it's 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 difficult. And I, I do want to say that um, for me, it was kind of like two worlds in which I really uh, was exposed to and experienced the the misery that the Iraq war brought. I mean, of course, first, there's my own experiences, um, people that I cared about and being very close to them and, and all of the years since we went to Iraq and kind of seeing how it affected them. You know, my my own experiences, of, although, of course, I was uh, I was very lucky on my deployment and things got very, very bad. Uh, the year after I left, um, but then there was the, 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 after I came home and joined the anti-war struggle. And was organizing among military families whose loved ones in the military had died by suicide or who were killed in combat or who were severely disabled and the families trying to pick up the pieces of a, of a son or a husband coming home completely different uh, organizing among active duty and, and other Iraq veterans um, meeting getting to know them very closely and personally and seeing their lives kind of ripped apart and destroyed. And so there is, of course, my own experiences. But then there's the experience in the anti-war struggle. And, you know, the um, you know, when I mentioned like my friends are dead because you lied, um, these are all people who died after they came home and who I met in the struggle and organized with, you know, people like Thomas Young, a uh, paralyzed veteran who then died of his wounds, uh, many people uh, who, that you know, died of suicide. A, a friend of mine, Zach Patterson, uh, just died by suicide, you know, about six months ago. And he was in the invasion of Iraq, like me, and, and, you know, over 15 years ago. It just kind of shows you the kind of lasting impact that this has on people. Um, and for soldiers who went for like one year and imagine being an Iraqi, having that be literally the last... 20 years and of course an ongoing nightmare uh, in iraq and so yeah it's thinking about all of those people um and i think it really hit me because like preparing for this you know it's it's a lot to think about if you have a chance to say one thing to george w bush what is it and it took a lot of um you know reflection and thought and so my idea was i wanted to uh, read the names of people who died Uh, at Bush's hand, both Iraqis and um, Americans who uh, who I knew or had some connection to through organizing and friends of mine who who lost friends there who asked me to put their names on the list. And even just creating that list was like which I did for the entire day leading up to the event was a, a great reminder of the real toll that 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 war took on those people because anyone who's lost a close family member a spouse or anything, you know, that's something you never really recover from. Especially when it should not have happened. It's one thing to lose a family member from uh, an illness or a disease or something, but when you lose someone from uh, a lie, um, a crime, uh, that's when you have this this yearning for justice and. Um, thinking about all those people going into that event that I had spent the day collecting from various massacres in Iraq and, and so forth. And then hitting up, you know, families that I knew who lost people and things like that. It was a great reminder as to why uh, Bush deserves this everywhere he goes.
0: There was a video because you've been uh, in, in the anti-war movement for a long time. Um, and so I found a video in preparation for Monday's show. That was you in 2012 talking about what you learned, like what what you thought was was happening and and kind of your intentions in trying to do something good when you were deployed to Iraq. And then what you discovered, uh, the humanity that you uncovered, including um with a a little eight-year-old girl who very much reminded you of your sister can you speak more on that
1: yeah sure um you know and this is uh you know something i i testified about at the winter soldier hearings in uh 2008 where myself and hundreds of other iraq war vets and active duty service members uh spoke about their experiences um but yeah i mean i i I think from some important context, I joined the army like one month before the 9-11 attacks in 2001. So uh, the army I had joined was, it was just like a different world and everyone going into the military, like everyone in my basic training, never, no one ever thought they were going to deploy anywhere because the idea of large scale wars, you know, just seemed like a thing of the past and not a thing of, of modern warfare you know, like the only war in recent memory was the Gulf War where, yeah, a lot of soldiers went, none of them were in combat. All the U.S. soldiers who died were pretty much killed by friendly fire, their U.S. bombing that screwed up and and killed a bunch of Americans. Um, So there really wasn't a a consciousness that if you joined the military, it meant you were going to war. And so my entire basic training was all people who were like, yeah, I was living in my car. And then this recruiter knocked on the window and is like, Hey, do you want to live in the barracks? Um, You know, stories like that. I mean, it was, it was like 90 i mean it's actually funny because when um you know the drill sergeants would ask you why did you join the army i was the only one who said to serve my country and it was like a joke and they would like laugh at you cuz everyone else would say for healthcare college money job training those were the reasons people were joining at that time of course there was like a shift after 911 where you had a lot of people joining for revenge for retribution or to knowing the country's going to go to war and wanting to participate and all of that stuff so the consciousness uh, changed a little but um, but yeah for someone like me who joined you know kind of with this real you know like we're so heavily indoctrinated in the US about what what the military is as this force for good in the world you know I joined the army uh, when I was 17 um, I actually turned 18. In basic training, Um, and so teenagers who are so heavily indoctrinated with this, like American exceptionalism, and the military is the most glorious thing you can be a part of. There's a real consciousness that you are this force for good in the world, and you know there really, for most people, really wasn't anything in recent memory to disprove that. Because there was like no big, you know, Vietnam was so far in the past and all of that stuff. Um, And so, yeah, so it was a big wake up call for a lot of us to kind of have this belief that in Iraq in particular, it was called Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, The whole point was Iraq was under a dictatorship and that we are going to go and bring democracy to Iraq and uh, a better life uh, for the people of Iraq. Um, You know, very quickly, uh, you because I was a part of the invasion, you know, you realize that. Uh, Iraqis had a pretty good life before the US invasion of course their political system was dictatorial and there is severe political repression and so in the sphere of politics it was of course uh, backward and bad but in public life healthcare education housing I mean Iraq was a very nice place uh, very nice place to live I mean uh, families from all over the Middle East would you know it was a great uh, honor to send your children to to Baghdad to go to university, and so people from all over the the Middle East would would aspire to go to to go to school in Iraq, um, and so there was and despite you know the effects of the sanctions, which of course were very difficult, um but to this idea of bringing a better life to a people that had a better life than the people I met in basic training, who were joined had to join the military because they couldn't get access to healthcare or they couldn't go to college. Yet those were the people that were going to bring deliver this better life to people who like. Had called and I remember Iraqis being like, "You guys have to like work to go to school. Like, what the hell is wrong with your country?" Um, so, of course, there was that disconnect between this this caricature that we had in our minds of what Iraqi life and society was like. Um, but then, uh, of course, the occupation began, and as the occupation dragged on, um, you cease to be uh, liberators and you become an occupying force. And so, my experience. Um, as just an occupying soldier, um, going on convoys, being at checkpoints, uh, you know, uh, working out in the the town in an Iraqi government building and kind of seeing the way the occupation was managed by the then the coalition provisional authority, which was basically US dictatorship replaced uh, Iraqi dictatorship. Um, And so, of course, there were many moments that were real turning points for me that made me really disgusted with what i was being part of um and one of those as you mentioned jen was uh you know uh coming uh face to face with a young girl who uh eight years old my sister was eight years old at the time who looked very much like my sister and her and her older siblings spoke perfect english and were were pleading with us to get out of their house and uh you know their their family that all the men in their family were being arrested it was just a horrific um thing to witness uh young children you know just in complete terror at the fact that they were watching their fathers and uncles um be taken away and in, in the back of a truck not knowing if they're ever going to see them again uh and so that and i think for a lot of uh people who went through the same transformation of me as as i did is that the iraq war was so much based on uh, racism on anti-muslim bigotry on anti-arab bigotry uh you know racial slurs were used and this kind of you know any american war has to dehumanize the people that you're fighting, so you see commonality with them um and that was one of those moments that you know made me think like what what would i think of me if this was my sister and about the people that were in the american uniforms and i knew what i would think i would uh want to fight those people.
0: What did George W. Bush say to you during your protest? I, I listened to this over and over. And and I believe that he told you to sit down and behave or an, uh, a variation of that. What did what do you hear? What did you hear?
1: Yeah, I, I heard sit down and behave yourself also uh, kind of funny. I mean, it's it's funny because um, in 2002, I actually saw George W. Bush speak also. He came to Fort Drum, New York, where I was stationed. Actually, they they picked a bunch of soldiers to sit behind him during his speech. And so I was one of those soldiers picked. And so I'm sitting like almost directly behind him during his speech. And I I watched his speech right before uh, going into Iraq. And so, um, yeah, it was interesting to have been that 20 years ago, like under his command, uh, where I would have to sit down and behave if, if he told me mm-hmm. to. Um, and then fast forward 20 years, so much has happened. And then I was in a completely, watching him speak in a completely uh, different context.
0: Oh, that's so infuriating. Um, Colin, why don't you go ahead and play uh, the uh, the action from the next night uh, that I had sent.
3: <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Sir, this is not the uh, time. This is not the time for that, sir. Yes. No. no, it is uh, disrespectful to the audience. Yeah. Yeah, no. There we go.
1: Um, that's okay. Here's the thing in America. uh,
3: The good news is in other countries, the guy would end up in jail for yelling at a president. Here he's allowed to express himself. And I want to apologize for uh,
0: what a smug little bastard. I mean, I cannot, I don't, I don't even understand um, how a person can get to the place where they can do as much evil as that. I know it's Uh, It's a thing that has happened all throughout history, but I just cannot wrap my mind around it. It's wow.
1: Yeah, you know, he was cut uh, off because he said I want to apologize for. But I I doubt he was going to apologize for the Iraq War. I think he's going to apologize for the disruption. But I think a great irony of what he said there is the great thing about America is that in any other country you would go to jail for yelling at the president of the United States. The ironic thing is uh, Iraq. The country that he supposedly brought freedom to american democracy and all the freedoms that we love in the united states you know when uh when Tadr al-zaidi the iraqi journalist who threw his shoes at bush he went to jail for a long time was brutally tortured in prison and so this the idea and so it's almost like he was referring to that in any other country like iraq the country i brought freedom to you'd go to jail for doing something like that so it was kind of added another layer of offensiveness to his uh, reaction
0: Well, speaking of the gentleman who threw the shoes, I've seen that your clip is really taking off and having an incredible impact. Colin, if you can pop up that uh, tweet, we'll show that as just one example. Um, So you guys at Empire Files tweeted, okay, having the blessing of the hero who threw his shoes at Bush is pretty badass which I agree with for sure. You've also had um, shares from Saddam Hussein's uh, daughter, I believe it is. Um, I saw a tweet that found you on a very popular uh, site in China. It's had 20, your clip has had 20 million views. I sent you yesterday, I just uh, organically came across a a Reddit thread. Uh, I think it was in the, the public freakouts thread. Um, but everybody that I saw in the comments were on your side, it had uh, hundreds of thousands of, of upvotes. Um, it's really made an enormous impact, I think, and, and in a way that other actions might not have. Like this, people are saying, and, and people said on Monday, like Mike's got got some steel balls there. Like how uh, how incredible that you were able to do this. What gave you the kind of strength and and guts to do this to a former president of the United States. Not that you did anything to him, but to to simply stand up and say the truth.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I felt like I had no choice. I mean, honestly, I knew if I did something like this, I would I would become like a center of attention. And that's something that I uh, very much do not want. Um, And and so I was reluctant to do it mainly for that reason, is that I didn't want to be in a spotlight in any way. But I just I just had to. I mean, when I knew that he was speaking and that I could get tickets, I mean, it's I just felt such a responsibility to all the people that would appreciate me doing that. And so I felt that I had no choice. And then, of course, going back and thinking about all the people important to me and their families uh, who you know, have never recovered uh, from what Bush did, and in particular, thinking about the Iraqi people. and the 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 reality that they live now uh because of this. Um you know I knew that I that I had to do it. I think mentioning that the the greatest thing for me, you know, it's it's gone around a lot in left spaces, it's gone around even in conservative media, it's going around. The the most heartening thing for me is that it's it's uh being shared widely among Iraqis. Um knowing that I'm an Iraq war veteran, you know, I I think they have plenty of reason to reject me on that basis, but the most meaningful thing to me is is uh, that the people I feel a great debt to um, supporting the action and and appreciating it and being able to see it. I'm I'm so happy that so many of them are able to see it. Another interesting thing is that it's almost most popular among like high school age kids. Like I have a lot of like on Instagram and TikTok, it's like young people that are liking this, which is funny because you like weren't alive uh, when Bush was around. You don't have the memory uh, of this, and I think what this means is, and I think. I think the the popularity of it, the virality of it, uh, of course, like I, I struck a chord with people and, and what I did resonated with people, um, not so much because of me or any abilities or anything like that. Um, I think it's because people really crave and, and resonate with militant action. I mean, there's so much going on in this country that's bad um, from the foreclosure and eviction crisis to the the inability of people to survive under covid um, to the all the different myriad problems that working class americans are dealing with and uh, and the idea that a a militant action where you are confronting you're getting dragged out by security all this stuff the fact that that struck a chord with young people who of course were radicalized by the racial justice movement of of the george floyd movement and and other uh recent social struggles i mean i think it's a, a it the popularity of it is very encouraging to me because it shows that actions like that, you know, you don't have to have a massive protest. I mean, you can make a difference. You can do something important. You can do something effective with a small group of people like I did. I've organized that with a, a, about a dozen people. I organized that action with who are doing logistical support, all of that stuff. You don't need a large number of people to do something effective. And I think that the, the, the fact that it has, has gotten so much support, um from young people from affected communities uh military families all that stuff it shows that people are ready for militant action and to me that's the most encouraging thing to come out of it
3: it's just this endless hamster wheel where like we occupy iraq afghanistan uh we're basically helping out the genocide in yemen then we leave a long time later uh we create you know vacuums for other uh terrorist groups to come up not because you know for for no other reason other than we've been occupying their countries yet the united states government and their corporate media propagandists keep framing all of this as you know self-defense and you know the grave threat of iran or you know the taliban there uh maybe we are pushing these terrorists into being terrorists
1: yeah i mean it's you hit it on the head and of course this this thing of course is blowback from American foreign policy a hugely destructive American foreign policy and I I have to bring up that you know that was that kind of rhetoric you know was in the of course the post the very the recent post 9-11 era that kind of like faded away over the years and I saw it brought back for the first time recently by none other than Tulsi Gabbard on 9-11 saying how we were attacked on 9-11 because like we're not all converting to Islam and all it was really like it was really like a Bush statement Uh, that was put out. And, um, you know, it's interesting if if that's the if that's the logic there, that countries who are like non Muslim nations are the target of so called radical Islamic extremism, because they want to like convert countries to Islam and any country that's not like a Muslim country is being targeted by by Muslim terrorists. um, Why isn't like, you know, Cuba, like an atheist state, like they don't have to worry about terrorist attacks from radical islamic extremists there's actually a probably a pretty long list of countries that are non-muslim countries that have no concern at all about being the subject of a terrorist attack what countries do have to worry about being a subject of terrorist attack it's imperialist countries who have a legacy of occupying colonizing invading bombing uh, countries and and having people from those countries then come and launch attacks again countries like France countries like the UK I mean they have pretty bloody legacies in the Middle East and so that's why they have a a concern about and have you know have been subject to uh, terrorist attacks in the past so it's pretty clear that if you look at what countries uh, are subject to attacks, and of course a lot of Muslim countries are subject to terrorist attacks Uh, and so if you actually look at what countries are are getting attacked by radical Islamic extremists and which countries are not. The idea that it's about our values or about our religion, it all just completely falls apart. And it shows that if you are going to be a country that wants to occupy, kill, displace people, there's probably going to be some repercussions for that. And so the, the solution to uh, if anyone's concerned with radical Islamic terrorism, the solution is, is just getting out of the Middle East Um, stop, stop the war against Arab and Muslim peoples around the world. Um, and you know, pay reparations and all the stuff that needs to happen for there to be justice. And this idea that we need to keep fighting a war on terror, which, you know, Biden was just at the UN general assembly saying for the first time in 20 years, we are not at war. It's like well i'm pretty sure we're at war countries across africa we're in syria we're in iraq we're still very much at war bombing yemen so forth um and so they they want to they want to create this new appearance that the war on terror is now a thing of the past when of course we still have boots on the ground many places drone striking many places bombing many places it's um it's it's an era that is still very much with us even though the large-scale occupations of afghanistan and iraq have have drifted away in the past
0: I wanted to ask you about that actually uh, quickly, um, about drone striking, which is now uh, in vogue in in war. Um, and we've just killed, our country has just killed, I believe um, 10 innocent folks, including children. Uh, what is your, uh, what do you say to the idea of us moving towards as Tulsi Gabbard has been on, on these platforms, I think Fox News with Tucker Carlson saying uh, that the move towards drone strikes keeps our troops safe, but it also removes the humanity, the humanity that you saw when you were told to do certain things against innocent Iraqi families um, and in that little girl who reminded you of of your sister. So drone striking, uh, troops doing that now, where's the humanity?
1: Yeah, I mean, Tulsi even took it a step further and said we need to do this against like Muslim governments. So she was basically talking about like we need to start drone striking like Iran and Pakistan and Saudi Arabia So she took it to a whole new level which Mm -hmm. um, I think was very good that she made crystal clear her her foreign policy Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, Daniel Hale who's sitting in a prison cell right now who is a drone operator Who then blew the whistle on US drone operations really helped? prove that the vast majority of victims from drone strikes 90 something percent are not the intended targets which is code for civilians people who did absolutely nothing that parting gift that biden gave to afghanistan of massacring an entire family mostly children with a so-called precision drone strike kind of perfectly uh you know is emblematic of the u.s drone warfare program which is very vast. I mean it was extremely escalated under Trump. I think Trump escalated drone strikes by like 400%, which is because when you you have to overcompensate if you're removing troops from an area, you got to keep killing people if you're the empire. So you just replace uh, people being killed with bullets by people being killed um, with missiles. But so I think the the idea that drone strikes mostly just kills innocent civilians. I mean there's this, like, how can that, how can that be accepted by anyone? Um, first of all, just that, that, how is it okay to to have that kind of collateral damage to kill? Like the guy who is like a driver for a, a Taliban official or something like that. I mean, that's really who are targeted uh, in these strikes, but I would, um, no one should accept that. No person in this country should accept that we have this massive assassination program that, uh, is killing such a massive number of civilians, children, innocent families, all over the world, literally all over the world. Um, But I would also take it a step further and say that we don't have a right to kill anybody. I mean, if drones hit their intended target 100% of the time, it would still be wrong. I mean, it's just the U.S. going around and executing people without trial because, oh, they have association with this person. And then if you talk to this person, it's like two degrees of separation, then you're on the kill list. Um, and so we, the, the cut. Is, if we ever want to um, see peace, if we ever want this era of forever war to really end, this uh, threat of blowback to really end, um, if, if we really want to move on from this era of war, um, the U.S. has to. Be a country that doesn't think that it has the ability like no other country does to go around the world and kill whoever it wants whenever it wants uh without charge without trial just because it says this person is bad and they uh deserve to die i mean it's just absurd when you when you really think about um that this this kind of role the US plays in the world as like judge, jury and executioner. uh, And then, you know, 95% of the time we execute, you know, just someone's innocent family. But even that idea that we can just go kill anyone we want at any time is just is pretty absurd when you think about it. I I think we talked about it yesterday, Jen, we get it
3: for the believe it when we see it, people, we get it, you don't have to throw them a parade yet. I do think it's at least kind of optimistic that at least a couple days before this deadline, they're still holding firm. But Predictably, Jen. Oh, CNN, and I, I haven't even watched MSNBC, so it could be worse over there. <laughs> yeah, probably. But predictably, uh, the Clinton News Network—they're um, not happy about this. They are not happy about this over at CNN. In fact, they are aghast. It's almost mm-hmm. like they had a meeting. Their 9 they're 9 a.m. Really edi- they had a 9 a.m. editorial meeting led by Jeff Sucker, Sucker, uh, their president, and said, "Here is the po- talking points." Okay, because I mean, I did not wake up to watch the first show, but I had a few shows on so you don't want to watch. And it is literally the same propaganda, lies, misleading framing. That is the reason, frankly, older people, excluding our great older viewers, neoliberal older viewers, what they are seeing on CNN right now is the reason older people vote for Hillary Clinton, vote for Joe Biden. Vote for Obama because they're fucking lied to over and over and over again. So yeah,
0: the disdain that these CNN anchors clearly have for the squad and progressivism and, you know, holding lo- the line for the people is is very clear.
3: Yes. So, Colin, let's start with the clip I, I sent you about five minutes ago. Uh, this is Pramila Jayapal, who, again, you know, at least publicly in a couple interviews, she's been holding the line. Nope we have enough people to tank this uh we're not gonna bend uh she she still could I mean apparently she met with Biden today in addition to others so we'll see uh I'm not predicting she's gonna hold a line because we've seen many times they haven't but at least for now this is the most organized as a block they've been at at least signaling they're going to uh that's not doing it but at least It's closer to doing it at this point. Let's see uh, the line of questioning from CNN with Pramila Jayapal this morning.
2: Well, it's just to be clear, two bills here, one has bipartisan support, the other one does not. It's a bill that Democrats are pushing, it's uh, $3 trillion. Will you issue an ultimatum that it is either two bills or it is no bills? That progressives are either going to say, hey, get on board with both of these or we are not on board with the smaller bipartisan. Broken. What do you say to moderates who say, "Look, we're the ones who gave you the House majority, and this is too tough of a pill for us to swallow"? But both let's remember you would, this is you, the president's agenda. They would be willing. They would be willing to take. That's not true. They would be willing to take something, which is the bipartisan bill. Well, you, they, are, you would be willing to take yeah, nothing other than both. To his desk. But why is According it all? Why is, deal deal why is it all? Why is it all or nothing? Before I let you go, I do just want to revisit this issue of these two bills and the fact that progressives, yourself included, you're saying all or nothing on this. And I, I hear what you're saying. You're saying moderates would be willing to take nothing there. But the reality is, is that if the progressive caucus continues with the hard line, there could be nothing. Right there could be nothing. There could be no bipartisan infrastructure bill. All right, I can't, oh I can't stomach anymore. Enough!
3: I can't. I can't stomach it anymore. I can't Jesus. stomach it. God it!
0: I hadn't seen that one. That's ho- that's really bad.
3: <laughs> and by the way, follow him on Twitter. This case study QB. Uh, let me make case study QB is his account on Twitter. But first of all, let's start. Let's start with the buzzwords because it's almost like they're in a meeting, throwing out keywords. Uh, ultimatum ultimatum, uh, the progressives are giving. Well, wait a minute, wasn't it the mod, and by the way, they're not moderates. They're, ec- they're economic and political terrorists, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. They're not even for sh- that they, they, don't, they don't even represent what their own rep, uh, constituents want. The people of West Virginia want the stuff in the 3.5 trillion bill. The people of Arizona want uh, the universal pre-K, paid family leave, free community college, expanding Medicare, Affordable, affordable housing dollars, um, climate provisions. Again, it's not Medicare for all. It's not burning down the system. We don't have the White House right now. We don't have majorities in Congress. So let's not say, oh, no, we don't want these good things because they're incremental. No, I mean, you could do two things at once, folks. We could fight for more, which I think needs to happen through economic boycotts and say, oh, these are really good things that we didn't expect to get through, through a white ring president. So it's not an ultimatum by the progressives right-wing Republicans like Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema, Josh Geidheimer, and all these other idiots, they they put down an ultimatum, <laughs> they put down an ultimatum that the bipartisan infrastructure deal needed to be voted on by September 27th. What is September 27th? Completely arbitrary. It doesn't need to be voted on by September 27th. So that was the ultimatum. Secondly, for this, ugh, I can't stand her. Uh, secondly, you want to get nothing rather than something? Isn't it CNN's duty to actually explain what that something is? Should they maybe explain to the audience what is in the $1.2 trillion um, uh Bipartisan infrastructure deal? Should they maybe explain that it isn't even $1.2 trillion? It's $500 billion in new money. Should they maybe explain that terrorists, political terrorists like Josh Geidheimer, Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema, and the rest of these Republicans in the Democratic Party, uh, they forced that whole bill to be stripped down for no climate proposals to be in it? Uh, maybe they should explain that. Who is actually providing the infrastructure? Is it the government? Like, you know, FDR in the good old days, government jobs programs? No, it's private companies. And there is something going on, which I don't want to bore you. Uh, I think uh, the American Prospect has done a great job on this. Go read them on this. There's something called asset recycling that's going on in this bipartisan infrastructure deal. So it's just, Jen, I'm sorry. I know I'm going on a rant, but it's just complete and utter propaganda very on par with state media in China or, or other countries. This is literally state propaganda media from CNN. And maybe tomorrow I'll watch MSNBC
0: because mm, it's probably a, worse that's there. That's risky, oh my God. And, and, and by the way. A real mission. By the um, way, by the way, can I just say? Sure.
3: Pramila Jayapal, wake the fuck up, okay? Fight back in these interviews. I know you're from like, you know, the Pacific Northwest and everything's nice over there. Uh, like, why are you letting them frame this, this way? Why don't you say, excuse me, excuse me for a second. Uh, The agreement that was made by the president, not us, by President Biden, by Speaker Pelosi, by Chuck Schumer, okay, was that these would be together, that they wouldn't be separated. So, we are not breaking the agreement. We are not being unreasoned. We are following what the president of the United States, Joe Biden, pretend to like him on CNN, what he wants. This is his agenda. So you're framing it and you are pushing a narrative that is false. Secondly, what I just said, explaining, you know, you, you Brianna Kyler, you, CNN, you seem very focused. It's almost, <laughs> like, it, <Keeler. laughs> it's almost like... Keeler. It's almost like... If they presented a shit sandwich to you, but it was voted on by both the Democrats and Republicans, CNN says it's a victory, as long as it's bipartisan. The American people don't give a fuck about bipartisan compromise. That is a Washington created myth. Excuse yeah. my French, everybody. They don't care about bipartisan compromise. In fact, they want Democrats to act like Democrats of the 1930s and 40s. So that's just one clip. We got a few more. Jen, yeah, if, so, th- if you have thoughts on
0: that. I, I do. Can, are you done or should I? Not, not really, but go ahead. Wait, wait a little bit. All right. No, yeah. I I, I echo all of your thoughts, um, except I want to add that these networks, so we're very clear here at Status Quo. Jordan and I are very clear about where we stand politically. We're clear. We, we very clearly separate our journalism from our personal thoughts, uh, and I think that that is the the best option, because the uh, corporate line uh, for journalists is, oh, we're impartial. We don't, you know, give our opinion. But in watching that Brianna Keeler clip, she's clearly giving her opinion. And that's something you'll see as a common thread across all of these clips. You can you can see the venom seeping out of their pores for progressives. In, in Congress and it's it's not hidden, but uh yeah they're they're partial, uh, so called. And it as part of that though, it's not just a matter of of pretending that they're neutral, it's that they're withholding information. So they're presenting only only part of the story. They're presenting only only part of this. And to an average American viewer who, who maybe is a liberal, watches CNN or whatever, like maybe on their lunch break, maybe they, they see one of these clips. That's potentially all of the information that person's going to have about this bill.
3: They don't care about the reconciliation deal. If these political terrorists and political hijackers and Wall Street servants pretending to be public servants, if they got their way, and yeah, maybe you'd have like a 900 billion, one trillion uh, reconciliation package. Yeah. You could have like the child tax credit in there. And yeah, maybe we'll give you a paid family leave, maybe free community college, expanding Medicare. No, too, too expensive. Uh, universal pre-K, nah, too expensive. Uh, climate proposals. Yeah, we could tinker around the edges, but nothing major because most of us are bought off by the fossil fuckers. So this is what they want. and, a, a legitimate journalist would say, "Yeah, but it's not actually two separate bills. They're not two separate things because politics works in terms of leverage. Politics works in terms of, you know, you blink or I blink. So, obviously, uh, you will. You commit on this show if these progressives vote for this uh, $500 billion infrastructure deal. Will you right now commit?" you will vote for the 3.5 trillion reconciliation deal. And of course he would say no, because they're not gonna commit to it because if they get their way and their bill gets paid first, gets passed first, then there is no pressure on them. They have all the leverage and you'll be lucky if you get 1 trillion and it'll be a joke. And they'll say, oh, the Democrats delivered shots in the arms, Uh, got out of Afghanistan, Uh, gave you a bipartisan shit sandwich and gave you a couple couple little crumbs in a, in a reconciliation deal this is a political terrorist jim shudo is a joke cnn is a joke i don't even honestly i don't even know why progressives bother going on there come on here come on uh you know democracy now come go talk and rally the, the progressive troops you know I don't agree with a lot of progressive channels on a lot of things, but one thing is true. These folks have not come on these shows. Um, for some reason, they're trying to convince older viewers being prop, uh, being fed propaganda by CNN. Uh, one more clip, if you guys could take it. Uh, Colin, if you have the, I think it's another Kate Baldwin clip.
2: So Josh Gottheimer, he's one of the moderates you're talking about, and one of the people that Pramil Jayapal is calling out in that soundbite. He was also just on CNN with my colleague Jim Shudo, and he said his words are, it makes no sense to vote against an infrastructure bill that does so much and has so much bipartisan support. Do you agree with that? Yeah,
0: I agree with that. (laughs) I wouldn't vote against it. This is why this makes me feel, this is why I feel
2: crazy because this thing, this is why people are right to feel crazy watching how this is going on in Capitol Hill right now. You agree, but we don't agree.
3: And in fairness to John Yarmuth, he is not for just voting on the the reconciliation, uh, on the uh, bipartisan 500 billion deal. He's saying they have to be together. First of all, first of all, again to viewers not like the man to be provided any information she says that has so many good things in it why don't you tell us what's in it your your co-worker your colleague in the morning show kept saying oh this is great there's such great things in it she wouldn't explain what's in it you say there's such good things in it what's in it yeah there's some good things in it you know broadband more access for rural communities you know there Five hundred billion dollars. Let's let's be serious here. I mean, you drive on your roads. That's a that's pennies on the dollar for what we need in this country in terms of actual infrastructure. But they just push that because it's bipartisan. And by the way, you got this for NAFTA. Oh, it's great bipartisan. Pass NAFTA. Uh, repealing Glass Steagall, bipartisan. Crime bill, bipartisan. Um, welfare reform, bipartisan. It's like literally, you could provide the American people a hot steaming pile of shit, and if it was bipartisan support, they would say this is great, it's a victory. So they don't explain what's in it. Then she says, "Oh, so am I crazy? Are the people watching crazy? This is Jen Premier gaslighting by supposed journalists, because no, no, you're lying." It's not just this deal. Stop pretending like the other deal would come. Stop pretending like this bipartisan thing is so great. When you, a news network, won't even explain what's in it, you won't even explain that it's privatization on steroids. It's not government jobs. You won't even explain it's not going to be high-paying union jobs. I mean, what am I missing, Jen?
0: Yeah, not. I mean, nothing really. I think an important point, though, is that you know people are tired they don't many many people most people don't have time to sit and, and go through bills and understand all of the nuance so they turn something like cnn on because they expect that those anchors are going to break things down for them so that they can then get an understanding uh so i i think it's you know for cnn it's really acting in bad faith to not present the facts to, to those people, uh, the, the, people who are turning on CNN expect the facts will be delivered and expect that it's accurate. And because of the way CNN presents itself, they expect that it will be, uh, impartial or, or whatever, um, depending on, uh, which, which facts, political faction you come from? Uh, obviously the, the Trumpers think that, um, CNN is, is uh, the Clinton News Network, as Jordan said earlier, (laughs) is completely uh, liberal news. Uh, It's certainly not progressive news. It's certainly not what the American people need or want. Uh, It's a major, major problem because, again, people are tired. People are working multiple jobs or struggling to find a job or are sick or are whatever. This country is in distress. So when they turn on a Kate Baldwin, they don't, want to be lied to and that's what they're getting
3: and by the way uh by the same framing you're doing why aren't if you're saying there's so many good things in the bipartisan deal why weren't they asking josh Gottheimer, why weren't they asking john yarmouth uh it what about all the great things in the 3.5 trillion reconciliation deal Gottheimer? Which one of those are you willing to toss? Which ones of those are we gonna strip down? So there's only good things in the privatized bipartisan shit sandwich, but the reconciliation deal that would actually help people and working people and poor people, that, oh, well, you know, progressives want too much. Honestly, and this is why I've always said, Jen, uh, it's great. Protest outside Nancy Pelosi's office, protest outside BlackRock, Protest outside Mitch McConnell's office. Protest outside banks. Indigenous protests, It's all great. There is no protest outside CNN. Never. There is no protest outside MSNBC. There is no protest. I outside will say the, the, New the York Times. only
0: time I saw a protest outside of CNN was in Atlanta during the George Floyd protest. Uh, folks right. went there and and you know railed against CNN for presenting misinformation. That was. Uh, Very interesting to see. I hadn't seen that before. Well, there was a tiny
3: one. There was a tiny one uh, of Bernie supporters outside CNN Los Angeles in
2: 2016.
3: So, yeah, I don't know. Like, basically, everybody's focused on the politicians and the corporations and by all means focus on them. But why do we allow? Why do we allow these basically public relations stooges putting on makeup and pretending to be... Forget public relations, these Democratic Party operatives (laughs) pretending to be journalists, just like the Fox News is right-wing operatives pretending to be journalists. Why do we allow them to operate in total comfort without any shame, without any pressure? I'm talking civil disobedience, nothing more than that. But like, why should they not be shamed? This is shameful. If this was taught in a Journalism 101 class and that it was like a legitimate class with legitimate journalistic principles, Mm I mean they would say f if you ever did this uh it's just disgusting and listen i'm not gonna lie to the audience i would not put money down on on Jayapal and all these progressives actually holding firm my best my best (laughs) guess they might not they might not vote on this one point well this 500 billion dollar infrastructure deal on monday they might vote no uh, which would obviously have to force the moderate, the right wing Democrats, uh, back to the table. But I think they'll do that, and ultimately we'll probably accept. Best guess, two point two to two point five trillion dollar reconciliation deal. So we go from six trillion down, if we're lucky, to two point two to two point five. Which I would say no.
0: Yeah.
3: I would say no to that. And why would I say no? Not that there still wouldn't be good things in there because you got to break the cycle at some point. You have to put your foot down at some point and say, we are not going to continue this endless corporate hamster wheel of lobbyists and Wall Street servants, elected officials that are Wall Street servants, essentially stripping good bills. Remember, Bernie wanted $6 trillion, and basically stripping it down to the bone and then framing it as a victory. We got to stop that cycle. And the only way to do it is to stop them. You know, Lawrence O'Donnell, who I'm not like super fond of, Mm -hmm. is an MSNBC anchor. Uh, There's a clip of him saying, yeah, the only the only way the Democratic Party will ever listen to progressives is if you stop voting for them.